All right. Tonight we're in Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to begin looking at verses 1 to 6. We might be parked there for a few weeks, but we're going to begin at least tonight. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, after a few weeks off, Lord, that we're able to come back together to seek you in your word, Lord, to um, begin this final vision cycle, Lord, to get to the description of our eternity, Lord, we're just so thankful to you, God, that you've shared these things with us, Lord, that you've given us eyes to see you, minds to know the truth, and we just pray, Lord, that you would bring us ever closer to the truth and closer to you. pray we work that through your word tonight, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so tonight, we finally begin the seventh uh, and final vision cycle in the book of Revelation. So I think a brief review of the previous six cycles in order so we can understand what's going on here in the seventh. I promise, brief. The first vision cycle was chapters one to three. The risen and glorified Christ appears to John and gives seven addresses to seven churches in Asia Minor, which represent the universal church and every local church of all time. And Christ addresses the time between his two comings, giving warnings about what we will face, about how we'll be tempted to stray from the truth and from our witness, and he exhorts us over and over again to persevere by looking to our final reward living bodily in his presence for eternity. The second vision cycle went from chapter 4 through 8, verse 5, and John is taken to the heavenly throne room where he sees the elect of all time, represented by the 24 elders, around the throne of God, worshiping. We saw the scroll with the seven seals, and that scroll that the Lamb, who was Christ, opened, we saw as the history of time once again between Christ's two comings. We saw the gospel must be spread until the end. We saw the reality of life in the world in the here and now, things like war and death, persecution for God's people, and all of this we saw will continue until Christ returns to bring final salvation for the elect and final judgment for the wicked. It was in the seals we also saw the 144,000 who were sealed by God, and they represent the elect of all time, because when John looks to see who these people are, he sees a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Then the third vision cycle that went through the end of Chapter 11 was the seven trumpets. We saw that the trumpets represent temporal judgment on the powers of darkness and on the wicked in the here and now. And we saw that this judgment happens as the church takes the gospel to every people and nation, reclaiming the world for Christ in this age. In the trumpets, we also saw the two witnesses that represent the message of the gospel carried by the church. We will do that until Christ is just about to return and then we'll be persecuted in an unprecedented way. There'll be the great apostasy from the visible church. 
and the Antichrist, working in Satan's power, will believe he has won the war, but then Christ will return, and he'll win his and our final victory. The fourth vision cycle, chapters 12 to 14, we saw the reality of a spiritual war that's ongoing between Christ's two coming. It began with the whole history of redemption and the eviction of Satan from heaven at the fall, and then his complete expulsion from heaven at Christ's first coming. And that's why Satan focuses on the church and makes war against us. And we saw described the two sides of the war. On one side is Satan, the fallen angels, the two beasts of worldly power and false religion, and those that worship the beast. We saw they were those that took the number of the beast that represented their remaining in their state of sin and rebellion and choosing to be on that side of the war. On the other side are Christ, his holy angels, and the 144,000, the elect of all time who are sealed with the name of Christ and God as opposed to the name or number of the beast. And we saw the end of the war, the harvest of the earth that represented the resurrection and rapture, then the harvest that represented the final punishment as the wicked were trampled in the wine press of the wrath of God. Next was the fifth vision cycle, chapters 15 and 16. And this section depicted in some detail the final judgment through the seven bowls of God's wrath. We saw the elect caught up in the air with Christ, having conquered the beast and its image. And then we saw God work it out so all of his enemies would gather against him so he could with one final blow defeat them all. And that was the battle of Armageddon, or the battle of the Mount of Assembly, which we saw as the final spiritual battle that will take place at Christ's second coming, which he'll win decidedly. Now what we just finished last time was the sixth vision cycle, chapters 17 to 19. That was where we saw the prostitute that is the world, spiritual Babylon, over against God's people in the time between Christ's two comings. We saw Babylon fall and the world mourn. We saw the marriage supper of the Lamb for the elect and the final judgment of the wicked when Christ, his angels, and the elect return with him in judgment. And now here we are in the final vision cycle. This cycle focuses on the defeat of Satan and the eternal state of the elect. Now the first six verses, we talked about this in our very first study, the first six verses in chapter 20 are the issue when it comes to someone's view of the end times. So much so that the different views are labeled based on one's interpretation of a thousand years spoken of here. Now let's review those views again quickly. We've been going through the book of Revelation from an amillennial point of view. The, world, the word means literally no millennium. And what that view believes is that there is not a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ, um, but that these verses, like the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book, are symbolic. The 1,000 years are actually the time between Christ's two comings. There's the post-millennial view that does not believe in a literal 1,000 year reign either. The difference is that post-millennials basically say the church will achieve uh, this worldwide golden age where Christian ethics will define society for a period of time, maybe a literal thousand years, and only after that Christ will return. There is the historic premillennial view that reads these verses very literalistically. It says that Christ will return, resurrect the saints, reign on earth for a thousand years, then Satan will attack one more time, at which point he'll finally be destroyed, the wicked will be resurrected and thrown into eternal punishment, and the new heaven and new earth will be created. This view, as we've seen, may or may not include the idea of a seven-year tribulation period that precedes all of this, and if it does, some say the rapture happens before, during, or after the tribulation, depending on their view. Finally, there's the dispensationalist view. This is the view that most of us are most familiar with. This is the most common view in non-reformed evangelical churches. This is the view that believes the premillennials do, but adds in that God will redeem the nation of Israel wholesale during a seven-year tribulation. They believe the church will be raptured out of this world before the tribulation begins, and it believes that there are parallel but distinct destinies for the nation of Israel and the church. 
And what you believe verses 4 and 6 are describing will naturally determine how you interpret the entire book of Revelation. And if you're consistent in your view, it will determine how you interpret the entire Bible. Now, we're not going to go back and go over all the issues with these views. But I just want to point out one more time that none of these views, regardless of what they claim, none of them interpret the book of Revelation literally. None of the views believe that the beasts in chapter 13 are actual monsters like Godzilla. None of them believe the mark of the beast is simply a name or a number marked on people. They all believe it represents something else. None of them believe chapters 17 and 18 are speaking of a literal woman sitting on a monster or even literal Babylon. Add to that the fact that the Bible nowhere speaks literally of a seven-year tribulation period and everywhere speaks of one second coming of Christ where both the final salvation of the elect and the final judgment of the wicked happen together and we realize it's very dangerous to base an entire doctrine on two verses of the Bible. George L. Murray said this of either of the premillennial views. He said, what's confronting us here is that no one can read the whole Bible without without discovering an inkling of this doctrine until he arrives at the third from last chapter of the Bible. If on coming to that chapter, he gives a literal interpretation to one sentence of a highly symbolical passage, he'll then find it necessary to retrace his steps and interpret all the teachings of the Bible in a manner, in a manner agreeable to this one sentence. The recognized rule of interpretation is to interpret an obscure passage of scripture in light of a clear statement. In this case, clear statements are being interpreted to agree with the literal interpretation of one sentence from a context replete with symbolism. Now, I have throughout the study tried to interpret the book of Revelation based on other clearer passages of the Bible to build a cumulative and consistent case for amillennialism. So we need to keep everything we've already talked about in mind through the first 19 chapters as we finish out the book. Now tonight, for Revelation 20, there are a few preliminary things to cover. First, these final three chapters of the Bible are meant to be a mirror image of the first three chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 3 tell us of the first heaven and earth, the first husband and wife, and the judgment pronounced on Satan. Revelation 20 through 22 shows us the judgment executed on Satan, husband and wife being the church and Christ, and the new heaven and earth. In the opening three chapters of Genesis, you have the creation of all that is. Included in that is the creation of man, the creation of woman who was taken literally out of man's side and the natural design of God for marriage between them. Then you have the fall of Satan and of man. We see that sin and death are brought into the worlds. The creation is corrupted and judgment and salvation are promised by God. Here in the last three chapters of the Bible, we have the final judgment that God promised on Satan and on sinful man. We have the salvation of those God has called and they are married to the bridegroom who they have been joined to. We also have the new creation completed in an incorruptible new heaven and new earth. Whereas Genesis tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's the waters. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we're told that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. God fulfills his original design for creation in these last chapters of the Bible. And we see that death, rather than being brought into the world, is taken out of the world. Sin, rather than being brought into the world, is completely destroyed. In fact, when we get to our eternity with Christ, sin won't even be a possibility anymore. And if the church is called the New Jerusalem here, we see a symbolically built on the foundation of the apostles, with the entrances being the 12 tribes of Israel, shows us that this, the ultimate end, the new heaven and new earth, is the point and the purpose of the whole of scriptures. Salvation history points us throughout to our final and eternal state, which is pictured first by the Garden of Eden. 
and we'll see similarities between the new heaven and new earth and the original Eden. In particular, the tree of life, which man through sin was forbidden to eat and live forever after sin. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Notice he reached out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And as we know, he was expelled from the garden. Here in Revelation 22, we read, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of a street of a city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which is 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Just as in Eden, we're told there flowed a river, here in the new heaven and new earth, there flows a river. Just as in Eden, there was a tree of life, here there are multiple trees of life. So this final vision cycle in the close of the Bible reverses the curse and presents us with a higher and fulfilled and incorruptible version of what Eden was. We read, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. All that God creates points us to him and to this. As the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All of it that God created, the delineation between night and day in Genesis 1, the heavenly bodies in Genesis 1, these all find their fulfillment in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's first. Second, I want to take a look again at verse 4 of chapter 20. John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast of its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Forgetting the millennium problem for a moment, let's talk about those who come to life and reign with Christ. The question is, is this the promised resurrection the Bible talks about throughout? Like we've seen Daniel talk about, and Paul talk about, and Christ himself talk about. Let's read a little further. He says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So we see here this is called the first resurrection. But the question is, is this talking about a bodily resurrection from the dead for believers? Well, let me ask you another question before we answer that. Let's read the rest of verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God in Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We see here the first resurrection is contrasted with the second death. Is the second death being discussed here, speaking of physical death or of spiritual death? Well, it's talking about the resurrection of the wicked and their eternal punishment. We'll see a little later. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here... The second death are people being thrown into eternal torment. The question is, is this a physical death being spoken about? No, it's spiritual death being spoken about. And this second death is being contrasted with the first resurrection back, back in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, 
John is comparing the first resurrection with the second death. And they're both speaking spiritually. Right? This is not speaking of the physical bodily resurrection of the elect. And we know that because Paul, in a very clear didactic letter that he wrote, tells us this in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. We've covered this. The physical resurrection precedes the rapture. It happens before the rapture. So if this is speaking of a physical resurrection, then one thing we know for sure is that we cannot say the rapture happens before Revelation 20, verse 4. And there's really no rapture being discussed here. It doesn't mean it's not here. But if this is speaking physically, there are a whole host of issues that come up. But there's more. The millennium in verses 4 to 6, by the premillennial literal reading, happens before the events of the rest of a chapter. But the rest of a chapter depicts the final judgment, beginning in verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the final judgment, as we've seen, is everywhere, with that exception, in the entire Bible, said to happen at the second coming of Christ. This is the day of the Lord we've seen the prophets speak about. It's a spiritual judgment that Paul speaks about. When he says, when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's the judgment that Christ spoke about at his second coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of a son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And based on what Christ says here, any kind of secret rapture before the final judgment is impossible, because it says the earth will mourn when they see Christ coming, and then the rapture will happen. All that to say, a consistent literalistic reading of this chapter means that Satan is shut away for a thousand years, the resurrection then happens, then the rapture, then there's a thousand-year reign, then Satan's released to come out to deceive the world again with the wicked who have still not been judged, then they come against the saints of God who have already been resurrected, and then Christ comes in judgment, and then judgment happens between the wicked and the elect. Because also note that in Revelation 20, the judgment of the wicked and of the elect happened at the same time, like they do everywhere else in the scriptures. John says, then I saw a great white throne on him and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. That would include the book of life, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what Christ spoke about 
after the Olivet Discourse when he told the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes with his glories, in his glory, and all the angels with him, which we saw at the end of chapter 19, then he will sit on his glorious throne, as what we're seeing here. Before him will be gathered all the nations, that's what we're seeing here. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when would we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Christ says this all happens at once. But also note that in Revelation 20, we're told the dead come back to life after the thousand-year reign. <clears throat> and I saw the dead, great and small. They're dead. They're still dead, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead, not resurrected, dead, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So these are the, all the dead standing before Christ, including those whose names are written in the book of life. They have not yet been resurrected. So it's even worse. If we want to take the dispensational view and talk about a literal millennial reign of Christ that happens at the physical resurrection of the saints, that happens seven years after the rapture and the tribulation, then what you have is a resurrection of the elect, a rapture of the elect, and now there's no more Christians. Then you have the tribulation, a subsequent resurrection of the elect, that's called for some reason the first resurrection, a thousand-year reign of Christ with the elect, then a final attack by Satan, then the final judgment, and a third resurrection of both the wicked and the elect. Now, why spend so much time on this just to set up understanding what we're looking at in Revelation 20? As I've said, I was taught dispensationalism. And when I really started to think about it and got to know the Bible more, I found it completely impossible in light of the whole Bible, which is what led me to the view I hold today. And as I said at the outset of a study, your view of the rapture and the millennium and the resurrection or any of these end times ideas is not a first tier issue to fight over or break fellowship over. However, I said then, and I feel even more strongly now after going through most of the book of Revelation over the last year plus, your view of all of these things will have a major impact on how you interpret the entire Bible. So we need to let the rest of the Bible interpret the book of Revelation for us. So now that we've seen how not to interpret the chapter, how do we interpret it? We're going to take a brief overview of this passage by going back to Revelation 12. That's why you have those handouts in your hand. Now remember Revelation 12. In the first six verses of that chapter, we saw all of redemptive history through Christ's first coming and his completed work. Let's go back to Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is Israel. And she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. That's the whole history of Israel. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. This is Satan. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. He is the king of this world. And his tail swept down a third of his stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Those are the other fallen angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so when she bore her child, who was Christ, he, Satan, might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she is a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So we see the calling of Israel. We see the purpose of Israel, which is the birth of Christ. We see Satan's fall through his rebellion. We see the fall of the other angels, though we're not given any detail. We have Satan's attempt to thwart Christ in his first advent. We have the ascension of Christ. We have the birth of the church, who will be preserved by God through to the end. And the reason that we get these six verses, this truncated multi-millennia span of time, given to be six short verses, is because it sets up what happens next. And what happens next through the next three chapters is all of time from Pentecost to Christ's second coming. Satan turning his attention to the church to try and thwart our mission to preach the gospel. This is the war we're in. And we're told how he does this. He does this through the beasts, through secular worldly power, and through false religion. But we're told of that preservation by God of the elect throughout as we fight our war against Satan. Remember, Christ is on our side. And this takes three chapters to tell all of this. Well, the same thing is happening here in Revelation 20. We're given six verses to set up what happens in the next three chapters. These six verses to be, that begin Revelation 20 are an abridged version of thousands of years between Christ's two comings. Read him again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Simply put, this is what happened, is happening right now. Right now in our lifetime, that's what's happening here in these six verses. So before we delve into the details next week, I just want to notice some parallels between this and the second half of Revelation 12, okay? These are meant to parallel each other. These are telling the same story. And you have them there across from each other in those columns. Revelation 12, 7 and Revelation 20, verse 1. We have, now a war arose in heaven, Michael and its angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Then in Revelation 20, we see that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So, in both cases, our attention is directed towards heaven to see the spiritual reality behind what we see here on earth, what happens on earth in the time between Christ's two comings. We are pointed to angels, to spiritual beings, and these are both describing the same spiritual reality. Revelation 12, 7 to 8. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Revelation 20 again. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. In both of these, we see the angelic battle, and we see Satan's defeat. And we see his expulsion from heaven. Remember, that's what happened with Christ's finished work at his first advent. Satan was then, at that point, limited in what he could do. This is what the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 represents. This is the same thing. And this is where, for some reason, a lot of Christians hit a wall and bail out. Can we really define the type, the, the time between Christ's two comings as a time of Satan being bound? Is Satan bound right now? Can we say that? Well, Christ did. Remember, when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, by the Pharisees, he says, he says this to them, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now the same word for bound is used here by Jesus that's used in Revelation 20 verse 2. What's important to understand is what Christ is saying here. With his finished work, with his death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of a spirit, Satan, who is the strong man, has been bound. And if you follow in our daily reading plan, you know the plundering of Satan's house, which is the world, is the mission of the church. The church are the plunderers of Satan's kingdom. In the power of the Spirit, we reclaim the world for Christ. And we've seen this represented a few different ways in the book of Revelation, but it's obvious if you follow the history of salvation from Babel to the day of Pentecost. And if you can't make that connection, I encourage you to do the reading plan next year. But even if you don't, you can see that Christ makes this connection multiple times during his ministry. Like in John 12, Christ says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Satan is the ruler of the world. He will be cast out, same word used in Revelation 20, verse 3. He'll be cast out when Christ is lifted up from the earth, a reference to, I believe, his ascension. Either way, it's a reference to the work of his first coming being completed. But note what will also happen when Christ is lifted up, when he completes his work. He says, all people will be drawn to him. Well, this is what we have going on in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And the inability to deceive the nations is the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's salvation since Christ's first coming. This is our word ethnos. We've looked at it a bunch of times. We cannot deceive the ethnos any longer. Satan is bound so the church can plunder Satan's goods, which is the world. We can bring the gospel to the nations so souls can be saved. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, the kingdom of God being spread through the power of the spirit and by Christ, the binding of the strong man allows us to plunder him. This is all talking about the same thing. This is like when Jesus said this of his ascension in John 16. 
Christ said, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I will tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, it's the day of Pentecost, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. This is the world, the nations outside of Israel. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. That's the ascension. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And again, the judgment of Satan, his being cast out of heaven, or his being bound, is the coming of the Spirit that will spread God's kingdom and reduce Satan's kingdom on earth. These are all tied in with the finished work of Christ. We're told in Colossians 2 that he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The writer of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that is the nations outside of Israel. And this is what Christ does during a thousand years. This is the time between his two comings. This is what some might call the church age. Christ reigns now over the world, and we reign with him as we conquer the world. This is the kingdom of God coming upon the world as the powers of darkness are overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why after the 70 or 72, depending on your version, are sent out in the Gospel of Luke, which is a foreshadowing of the mission of the church to the Gentiles, also a reference going back to the giving over of the nations at Babel, this is what we read in Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus is referring to Satan's being cast out of heaven, and the church's power to expand the kingdom by crushing the head of a serpent, by treading on powers of spiritual darkness. This is the binding of Satan. This is the restraining power of the Holy Spirit during the thousand years, is what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Well, this is what is happening in Revelation 20. If you look again, Revelation 12, 9, and compare with Revelation 20, 2 to 3 there on your chart, we read, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 20. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Note the description of Satan is the same in both passages. He is the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. He is thrown down to earth, and he is bound and thrown into the pit. These are the same thing. Now we need to pay attention to what's going on here, all right? The earth and the pit are the same. Satan is expelled from heaven, not allowed back in heaven. That's why it's sealed over him. And the thousand years of Revelation 20 is the time that Satan is expelled from heaven and stuck on earth, which is the time between Christ's two comings. But in Revelation 12, Satan is called the deceiver of the whole world. In Revelation 20, we're told that during the thousand years, Satan does not deceive the nations any longer. Is this a contradiction? No. It's actually saying the same thing. When Satan is called the deceiver of the whole world, it is a reference to the whole world outside of Israel since Babel and until Christ's first coming. Now, Satan is still the deceiver of the world, but this is the world over against the church. Remember, Satan's primary weapon in this age is deceit. 
And the Bible is clear on who this deceit works on now that he has been bound. It works on unbelievers. Satan's power is only over unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul tells us this used to be us. We, the Gentiles, the nations, were once like this, right? In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul goes on in the book of Ephesians to describe how Christ has torn down the separation between Israel and the nations and how all are now included in God's salvation. And once we are called by God to salvation, we are no longer under Satan's power and subject to his deceit. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He's calling about becoming susceptible to Satan's deceit when we sin. Because we, believers, we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not deceived by Satan. And as we saw, the reference to the nations can also be translated Gentiles as speaking of the separation between Jew and Gentile being taken away. The nations that were left to Satan and the other false gods at Babel can now, by the power of the Spirit, see through Satan's deceit and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Satan being bound in the abyss or being thrown down to the earth means he can deceive the world down here over against the church, but no longer the world over against national Israel. There's only one people of God. And these are those described in the next verses. Revelation 12, verses 10 to 11. John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives even unto death. And in Revelation 20, John says, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we see the parallels here. We see multiple times in the book of Revelation already, the entire church is represented as the martyrs, as the witnesses who die with Christ. This is what's being spoken about here. Those who did not love their lives, but rather loved Christ. And we see here the fall of Satan is the victory of Christ and of his people. Again, Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And in Revelation 20, verse 3. The angel threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we see in both cases, there is a time limit. There's a limit on the time that Satan is bound. There's a limit on his expulsion from heaven, and this is the thousand years. This is why Christ tells us to always be ready for his coming. And as we've seen, there will be right before his coming, that time represented by all those three and a halfs in the Bible that we've looked at, where Satan will cause the great apostasy from the church, he will raise up the Antichrist, to be the unprecedented persecution against the church and the great apostasy. That is his release. This is Paul's reference to the spirit being taken out of the way from restraining the lawlessness. So we see the parallels here. This is how we need to understand these first six verses. These first six verses cover the entire time between Christ's two comings. This is just an introduction. We'll actually get to each verse next week. <laughs>